Hello everyone and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Jess Farmery, PR lead at Somex, back for a second week as your host and with me today I've got Hugh and Jessica from the Somex team and our very special guest Johnny Andrews, Chief Medical Officer at Certificate and part-time NHS Urgent Care Doctor. Um, Johnny's a friend of Somex and a veteran of the health tech scene with experience ranging from clinical trials to B2C healthcare and hardware startups. Um, Johnny, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's great to have you with us. Um, how's your week been? Yeah, thank you so much for the uh, very kind intro and words and extending the invite for me. It's really good to be on. Um, yeah, week's been really good. It's like many weeks, especially when you're working in startup land, it's, uh, it's flown. So, uh, but it's been, yeah, it's good. Things are good. Great. Uh, Jessica, Hugh, how have your weeks been? All good, thanks. Similarly, week has flown, much like a pigeon. <laughs> I mean, I don't think, I've never talked to anyone who says their week hasn't flown by, like weeks always seem to, to fly by. Mm, it's true. Um, okay, cool. So we've got a whole host of very good stories this week. So I'm very excited for this episode. And we will jump straight in. Um, with a story from Forbes, um, piece from Brian Robinson, and he is writing about ketamine-assisted therapy coming to an HR department near you. Um, so in this piece, Brian's looking at the growing popularity of ketamine-assisted therapy, um, CAT, as an alternative to traditional antidepressant medication. Um, and several workplaces in the US have begun offering CAT as an employee benefit. So the most well-known types of this therapy are in-person clinic therapy, where ketamine's administered intravenously, um, or you can also get it through telehealth providers, where the prescriptions are shipped to the door and therapists kind of provide care or facilitation. Um, and the question here is, yeah, well, why are employees um, try, like, experimenting with this offering as an employee benefit? Um, and do we think this is something which is going to become mainstream over the next few years, or is this just a PR stunt from a few companies i mean what's everyone else's opinion on this one i think it's really really interesting so it's something that i've followed a little bit and it's kind of suddenly kind of sprung out of almost nowhere so i mean i remember sort of 12 12 years ago when i was in med school kind of coming across ketamine the first time in the anesthetic department and kind of going okay yeah it's that class b drug that people also take and it's very dissociative it's you know uh, can lead to psychosis in higher doses so first hearing about it as a treatment um, uh, in in the mental health space kind of was like, oh, okay, this is quite interesting. But I think there's quite a few trials. I think in the last, since 2018, 2019, there's been, there were quite small studies. But I think um, I think last year that, that there's actually a lot more work that's gone on. And actually there's a, a particular uh, compound, esketamine, which is uh, FDA approved. So that's a nasal spray uh, in the States. I think NICE had a look at it twice and uh, decided it wasn't cost-effective, and that's why it's not NICE-approved. But actually, if you look at, uh, I think Oxford University uh, NHS Trust is actually um, sort of uh, allowing it as a fee-for-service. So actually, private patients can actually uh, pay out of pocket for this therapy, or some can actually be reimbursed if they are um, referred for treatment-resistant depression. So I think the important thing for me uh, is like actually looking at kind of where it, this is, of course, an, an off-label use. It's still obviously primarily used as an analgesic and, and uh, anesthetic, but um, it's, uh, you know, it, it, it is shown to be effective in treatment-resistant depression, which uh, looks like it accounts for between 10 to 30% of severe depression. So it's quite a 
uh, a large group of patients that can be affected. And of course, it's not only depression, it's, it's uh, anxiety, it's PTSD as well, uh, and possibly also OCD as well. So I think there's obviously a lot more research that needs to be done. But I think there's six clinics in the UK that uh, administer IV ketamine. And I think it ranges from a bit between sort of four to six grand um, for for appointment. But I think the, the amazing thing that, that really shocked me was actually how how quick it works and I think that's that's the real kind of pro that is is really getting um touted because it, it works really really quickly it works really quickly obviously as an anesthetic and painkiller but it also has those same effects on the brain um through slightly different ways that um traditional antidepressants work which have, have to kind of boost the your happy hormones but actually this works in a completely different way and change the neuroplasticity so it works really really quickly but of course it, it needs it's not a cure it, it will need of course um you know repeat treatments but i think it's really really interesting um and i think it's really interesting to see companies offering it as a benefit so i think we all know especially post pandemic that um, companies are really looking for what they can do to engage their workforce to actually you know show that they actually value um humans and i think people who are working remotely or hybridly are, are actually you know that much more um dissociated from their workplace and their colleagues so actually uh, you know, focus on mental health that is not just only kind of offering what everyone else is. Here's an here's a online counselling or here's an app, but actually a therapy which is shown to be quite effective is, is quite interesting. Um, so I think I, I can see some tech companies are adopting it in the US. It would be interesting to see kind of where that goes um, beyond. Yeah, I looked, I tried to do some research to see if any UK companies were offering it, but I couldn't, couldn't find any examples of UK companies. But yeah, it was interesting. There was the, one of the founders quoted in the piece was saying 10 years ago, it would have been like a big deal just to offer your employees things like um, access to therapists or um, app counselling. Uh, and now that seemed kind of like as the standard as, as expected. Um, and now other companies are kind of looking for more effective solutions. So it's just interesting to see that trend develop. And who knows, maybe in 10 years time, this kind of um, therapy will become the norm and everyone will have access to it. Um, but yeah, and you were saying about the um, the speed of access. Just I thought it was interesting that they quoted um, statistics in the piece from a study that thirty percent of participants in a recent study um, achieved remission after just four sessions, um, and that was for depression and anxiety. So yeah, it really does work quickly. Mm, I think it's it's very cool, very very cool. And I mean, speaking as a person and an employer as well and I think you're totally right Jess that employee assistance programs have you know are actually relatively new and now kind of considered to be a standard um which ultimately is for most people kind of telehealth talking therapy and I think it you know it's a really interesting tra trajectory to think that we could end up in a place where actually these kinds of innovative treatments are being considered the norm and you know based on the data that is already there you know I think it's incredibly promising and you know the the benefits could be could have a huge impact um but I think you know when you consider obviously the US health system and and you know the insurance model for example the fact that actually these employers who are providing this service it's they're providing services that are are not going to be able to be covered by your uh, regular health insurance. And I think that that's an interesting step change, I guess, from, um, you know, just a usual uh, health insurance policy where employers are now looking 
to not just fully embrace mental health um, and and all, the total breadth of that, because, you know, let's be honest, ultimately, an EAP is a pretty low level intervention compared to a ketamine assisted talking therapy. Um, but actually recognizing, you know, the potential power of that, but actually the willingness to also go above and beyond um, and and looking for new ways to provide treatments for people that they would not otherwise be able to access even, you know, through their insurance. And I wonder, you know, thinking even bigger scale or more broadly, what that means for other innovative treatments that we also know are not routinely covered by uh, insurance policies, or even to your point, Johnny, you know, in the UK where, um, you know, NICE haven't approved this, for example. Um, and, you know, we think about really expensive cell and gene therapies. Um, and I was reading about one just yesterday. I think the most expensive uh, treatment in the world that has been approved is something like £2.8 million as list price, which is a cell therapy is showing curative potential. Um, but ultimately, you know, the, the real tragedy there is that it, it could it has the potential to save lives. And yet, even if you have healthcare insurance, most of the time, those kinds of treatments that genuinely are going to save lives aren't, aren't covered. Um, and so I think, you know, that it's watching the health insurance space particularly is going to be incredibly interesting for the years to come as we look at more innovative and personalized therapies and looking at how insurance is going to pivot to include them. Because I, I think by and large, like, health insurance is relatively standard but healthcare is moving to a more personalized and innovative model um and increasingly in taking that holistic approach that looks at mental health and physical health either as you know in its entirety or really you know doubling down into mental health and i don't think that existing insurance probably stands up to that right now and there is going to have to be a shift um I don't know what that looks like. I'm not an expert and I don't work in health insurance, but um, it's something I'm really kind of keen to see what happens and how that rolls out. And and you're right, you know, how our employers going to continue to embrace this kind of thing? Um, who's going to be the first UK company to offer it to their their team? I know that Jess is going to be lobbying Somex pretty hard. Think think of the PR value though. Yeah, like, totally. Make some headlines. It's going to be great to see if it's one of those American companies that like embraces it because it's a bit more socially acceptable within certain cities on the West Coast mm, um, that then true. kind of bring it over as a benefit or whether it'll be driven by startups in the UK. Either way, I think mm. we're definitely going to see that social um, that social resistance in the UK you know, mm. come in. You know, I bet you there'll be a few more few headlines on from. Uh, some publications with uh, the woke businesses tr- uh, want employees to do ketamine at their desk <laughs> before it becomes like a, a, a big thing here. So our next story is that after eight years of losses, digital health uh, scale up, Kiri is headed for profitability in 2023. Um, so the Nordic telehealth giants, who are also known as Livy, are now offering in-person care, having opened 28 physical primary care units in Sweden, um, as well as four clinics in Norway and two in France. Um, And in the UK, Livy is the largest digital health provider to the NHS, um, even more so now that um, Babylon's pulled out of most of its contracts here. Um, And it's predicted that Curie will hit profitability in the UK and France in late 2023. Yeah, so I... I found this one particularly interesting. So I've been watching, I guess, the primary care, digital primary care market a little bit closely uh, because 
in with Certific, that's that's uh, an area that we are also focused on. And uh, also working for a, a Baltic company, the Nordics are very close by. So Kiri is obviously a, a great Nordic Swedish um, scale up that has come out of there. So um, I think it's, it's it is very interesting because I think what we do know is um, many telehealth providers. Babylon uh, was a very famous example. Um, were you know actually really needed to grow and scale super super big uh, in order to really demonstrate their potential economic value. So I think there was always this this argument that that's the reason they needed to grow and 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 really get so big. But actually, they kept you know raising and raising money. And and when would actually profits come? And it's actually really interesting to see that I think the early reports um, that I think they're being a little bit cautious on it. But I think they've shown four months of. Um, of uh, profits actually in in the home Nordic markets, so that's Sweden and Norway, and really I think it's a, a change in the the business model. So in Sweden, it used to be the case that digital uh, appointments were reimbursed exactly the same as a physical GP appointment, and then the state changed that, and and now they don't get that. So actually, I think the pivot to kind of now going back into actually having physical premises, the twenty eight clinics that you mentioned, just in. Uh, in, in Sweden and uh, for in Norway uh, and and more planned for for France and and the UK. I think that's that's really going to actually open things up not only for just doing physical and and remote, so or, or maybe a hybrid, but also I think that they it, it works really well with their plan to have more of a an ecosystem of services. And I think this is really where a healthcare provider can actually be that. They can be a provider that can offer a lot more services uh, and actually really benefit from the, the economies of scale. So I think in um, 2018, they started off with a, uh, a dermatology service and, and they've got um, psychotherapy as well. And I think uh, they've got pediatrics in France and, and women's health is also coming here to the UK with uh, under the brand Livy. So I think with more and more verticals, there will be actually uh, much more sort of benefits that they they, they can make in, in terms of also saving, you know, demonstrating true efficiency to the patient, like shortening referral times is going to be something that's actually going to be um, really beneficial for them and, and essentially keeping that patient a customer for longer. Um, so, so, yeah, it's really interesting and I think uh, um, positive for them to, to see some some uh, profits actually showing from, from the Nordic markets. Let's see if that actually translates though uh, across France and, and UK. We know that they had to pull out of Germany uh, in November. And I think that was obviously due to the German market being not so receptive to digital health. But let's see uh, how things um, go in France and the UK. I think time will really tell. I think it's really interesting hearing this news coming off the back of several stories that we've talked about on Pigeon over probably the last six or 12 months. To your point, Johnny, then pulling out of Germany, we've seen quite extensive layoffs. And, you know, I guess that at the time seemed pretty brutal, I think, but also came at a time where, and continues to, at a time where lots of health tech companies and, and companies in this space are having to make difficult decisions. And I think, you know, whilst it's very easy to, you know, potentially criticise or question um, some of that decision making, particularly the impact that it has upon the individuals where, you know, they have been made redundant. Um, it's clear that, you know, profitability is a really important goal right now where you also can't 
simply rely on raising money through VCs, um, particularly not at the rate that that we've seen previously. And it, it goes to show that actually, yes, you do have to make difficult decisions sometimes for the longevity of the business and and to create impact. Um, and I think you know, I I would say that in many ways, kind of whilst difficult and the, the impacts I'm sure have been relatively far reaching for those affected, you know, kudos to them for, for taking those steps to protect um, ultimately the core of their business and getting to that point of profitability so that ultimately they're not just reliant on having to, to raise funds and, and being able to extend their runway in, in that respect. Um, I think, you know, having a, a, a view of taking, utilizing different models, I think, and yeah, really seriously considering how to diversify their business models and their offering, uh, I think is is a, a shrewd move and ultimately also will pay dividend, I imagine, when I think about, you know, the experiences of patients over here in the UK and the challenges they're facing in trying to access care, you know, directly through the NHS. So I think, you know, it sets them up to be a really strong contender and a great partner um, for the NHS and NHS services to hopefully address some of the challenges that that we're facing. But yeah, certainly from that kind of business perspective, I, it, it's clear now that, you know, they had an end game or not an end game because, you know, there's there's clearly still an end game, but, you know, there, there was a plan and, and it's starting to unfold now and paying back for them. So it's encouraging to see, I think. It strikes me there's also a really valuable lesson to learn for every health tech company looking at different markets and that is really understanding the differences the cultural differences the different things that the different things that different markets want you know if they're if they've found profitability in the nordics by that you know building that blend of in-person versus telehealth they've had to pull out of germany because of the resistance to digital health and then they're looking at the uk market where a lot of their sort of drive towards profitability in 2025 has been by picking up what babylon has left on the table um, so there's, you know, there's really different market conditions. There's different things that different markets want, and different ways of getting those things paid for. Um, so, you know, anyone thinking about expanding into new markets, just be aware of what they are and make sure to um, adapt accordingly. So our next story comes from Kai Nicole Schwartz, a previous pigeon guest. Um, and journalist at Sifted. And he has talked to some of the top health tech VCs. So from Octopus, from Calm Storm, Heal Capital, um, and Albion VC, amongst others. Um, and he's asked them to share their health tech ideas that they want to be pitched, um, the dr- kind of dream investments they would like to make in 2023. Um, and they've come back with some really interesting themes. Um, One of my personal favourites was um, from Molly Gilmartin at Albion, um, and she wants to see ideas pitched around startups that incentivise patients to share their health data. Um, So that was my favourite one. Has anyone else got a favourite one there or anything they found particularly interesting um, in these topic areas or predictions? I thought they were were all very interesting. Um, I, I feel they're also, you know, I think more, more thought out now into slightly more niche things so the the pediatric super apps i think that was um chantelle cox from uh, octopus and i think you, you know um so my wife's a pediatrician but uh, and i and i think me being more of a generalist working in urgent care i i see a lot of things and i go okay that that would target a large segment of the population um there's a lot of things that are you know targeting 
low-hanging fruit. There's obviously the big trend in, in uh, virtual wards and remote patient monitoring um, and telehealth. But it's interesting that there's not, I've not seen, and, and obviously Femtech as well, but I've not seen huge amounts uh, around targeting to um, children and, and parents as well. Also, having become recently a, a young parent, even though I'm medical, there's so much I just don't know. So um, I really feel like this is actually something that there are, with a bit of a baby boom post-pandemic, I think that there is a lot of demand for that. Um, and I think, as uh, Chantal notes in the, in the article, there's a lot of influencers giving information online these days. Um, my wife's always sending me Instagrams and this is what you should do as a, as a dad and, and all these hacks. But actually, I think something that is actually medical medically validated um, with support that can also feed into multiple other channels. So that might be early year, year support at school. That might be speech and language therapy, for example. That can be lots of different um, allied health professionals uh, on this sort of platform. So I think something like that um, it's probably very much needed. Um, and I think I think we quite possibly will see some exciting breakthroughs in the space. I think it's also super interesting that across the five VCs, predominantly they're talking about software um, rather than hardware devices, wearables or anything like that. Um, and yeah, I, I wonder if that is indicative of uh well it will be indicative of obviously what they see as kind of i guess the future of, of digital health and health tech um and maybe increasingly moving away from the development of new devices and utilizing perhaps the ones we already have to have greater impact or for greater utility perhaps and i think um i guess the one that perhaps is more slightly hybrid which is uh, Fiona Pathraja, I think, talked about was around chronic disease management, where ultimately, you know, if you're remote monitoring for people with chronic conditions, clearly you want to have a really strong intersection between excellent hardware that's going to give you really precise and accurate measurements and also great software that's going to provide a, a great user experience, but also provide the right data and right insights to the right people in the right way. Um, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting that that very software focused and much less on the on the device side i think the um the preventative health tech for, for elderly patients as well that's that's something that's quite interesting as well i think typically we've seen with software um you know startups focus on on the the low-hanging fruit so you know the, the early adopters who are typically digital savvy savvy you know um young people but obviously i think now we're moving with it an aging population who are actually more adept at using technology, especially post-pandemic. Um, but I think there's, you know, I think there's a, a lot to actually be said for focusing on the aging populations, as um, you know, a lot of, I think, chronic diseases as well will carry in into old age. So I think there could be kind of trends that focus on chronic disease management, um, as well as uh, uh, more targeted towards the elderly population as well. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? Actually two of the areas of focus that we've talked about and that's touched on in this article are actually the two ends of the age spectrum, really early life and, and all, all, later in life. Um, and I think, you know, always in healthcare talking about an aging population and, you know, often when we talk about digital solutions, forgotten about in, in many respects because they're not necessarily perceived to be so digitally savvy. And then equally, I think, as you said, Johnny, 
I haven't heard of very many solutions that are actually targeted at new parents or, you know, young children in particular. And I think perhaps that is because often children are seen to be, you know, you test treatments, you test solutions in more robust older human beings and children are inherently more of a risk. They're they're more vulnerable in many ways. Um, They're still growing people. Um, And so I think often people and and innovators will avoid that population because it is seen as a a risky market, but actually that ends up meaning that they can be really underserved in a similar way to to an older generation who maybe are dismissed because the perception is that actually they just don't have the digital survey. Um, But times are changing, so it's exciting. So here is a fantastic story from BBC News and Northumbria Healthcare NHS Foundation Trust is working with a startup called Apian. Um, to pilot the use of drone flights to transport chemotherapy treatments, blood samples, equipment and mail between hospitals at speeds of up to 70 miles an hour. Um, And during the pilot phase, there'll be six flights a day and they're going to aim to increase that to 15 flights in May. Um, Hugh, do you want to jump in and talk about this one? Yeah, so I think this is a super exciting one, not least because the cynic in me saw it uh, and thought, wow, someone's come up with a great use for drones finally. Um, But... What I think the joy of it is there's so many, you know, there's so many obvious benefits to using drones for this kind of thing. Um, This is the sort of, it's not the first test case they've done, but it's the kind of live one now. And if you think about Northumbria, where hospitals, there's, you know, there's quite a long distance between, it's quite remote, it's quite hard to get things quickly and efficiently move between hospitals in um, sort of that area of the country and other sort of similar areas of the country as well. So, uh, yeah, really exciting. Then there's the kind of environmental benefits. Um, there's, you know, it's cutting down on fuel. It's cutting down on having to navigate through, you know, towns, villages, country lanes, that kind of thing. So you're getting things super quickly moved from one hospital to another. And then there's, you know, just looking at sort of the kind of questions about how can you kind of safely move these medical supplies around. And that's really, that's really exciting one as well, because, you know, they've asked the question, can the chemotherapy that they're looking at transporting survive the flight? And yeah, it's it's shown that it could be stable, you know, the whole way. Um, and that when, when they moved it from one to another, it was absolutely, um, you know, there was no issue with having moved it and transported it in that way. So I think this is super exciting makes us wonder, you know, is is the future of NHS logistics, you know, maybe a bit different, maybe a bit more drone enabled? And could uh, could the NHS do what Amazon has been trying to do for years? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking like, well, this time next year, there will there be drones flying all over London carrying um, medical supplies between hospitals? That would certainly be um, exciting to see. It would be so cool. Might be a little way off that yet. Though. It does feel, and I say this with a caveat because I mean it in a really positive way, it does feel a little bit Black Mirror. Um, it feels so futuristic, but also drones have been around for such a long time that it's about time we found like a useful use case for them over and above, obviously taking brilliant footage. But I, I think it's really, really cool. And to your point, Hugh, about um, the environmental factors, I think healthcare often is... We know that like climate change and the environment is really, really important at the moment. And pretty much every industry is really focused on tackling it. But healthcare generally gets exempt from that and kind of let off the hook in many respects because they have bigger fish to fry. They have bigger problems. And ultimately, their core business is saving people's lives and keeping people healthy. But 
we also know that healthcare is one of the most polluting industries worldwide. And so I think it, it's really cool that actually, in many ways, it sounds like they're, you know, the NHS is becoming a, a first mover in utilising lower carbon emitting technologies, particularly for transportation, which is, you know, there's a huge carbon footprint associated with that. And there are, I haven't heard of a lot of companies or solutions tackling that as a problem because I, as I say, I just don't think it's seen as a priority. And probably if you go to many um, procurement teams in the NHS or even health systems globally to say, hey, you know what, I can lower your carbon footprint, you'll probably be, for the most part, laughed out the door because ultimately, you know, that's just not going to be in their top tens of things, top 10 things that they want to solve that week. Um, So I think what this is actually doing is solving a really important problem, as you say, you know, moving medicines and medical supplies across, uh, you know, quite a significant distance, particularly when you have in rural settings, it's solving a problem that has that secondary benefit where it is addressing um, some of those environmental challenges that actually just aren't front and centre in healthcare. And, you know, I wonder if increasingly we'll see solutions that whilst, you know, they are really laser focused on solving a, a, a significant issue in healthcare, if they're able to back it up with the other great impact that it is having, then I think, you know, that might, we, we maybe we'll just see more of that, especially as we know, investment in, you know, climate tech and that kind of thing is pretty buoyant. You know, maybe that's an interesting avenue for certain solutions that that could cross over into that space to look for funding as well. I don't know. I was going to say that I certainly think the sustainability um, angle has actually become more visible in, in the NHS mandates and in in maybe in the last year or so. I think mm. kind of so, some of it tackling um, tackling surgery and trying to do kind of net zero operations and, and turn hospitals to be to actually physically be more environmentally conscious. So I think there is a there is a move towards net zero by mm. I don't know when it was 20, 2040 perhaps. Um, and I think there is there certainly are incentives for for um, these sorts of uh, um, approaches. And I think uh, what Apian's doing, I think if I'm if I've got this right, is it is also doing a bit of research to look into the environmental impact. Um, and I think what they what they initially started off with, which was really really clever, was um, ferrying uh, COVID PCR tests from lots of different places somewhere in Essex into one central hub. Um, which was actually a really smart move because actually the other alternative, which was also ongoing, was they were using taxi drivers who were obviously not needing to ferry people around, uh, which is obviously not necessarily the most efficient way of doing it as well, especially as they're outside of the M25 and probably putting a foot down at 70 miles an hour. So, uh, you know, um, I think it, I think it's really, I think it's really, really interesting and exciting, and it's it's really cool to see this kind of stuff literally flying around. Putting it in, in numbers, the NHS accounts for five percent of all road journeys made in the UK. Wow. Um, so, if there's anything out there that can tackle that kind of um, carbon footprint, or um, frankly, you know, traffic on the roads, then can't, mm. it can't be a bad thing. Fab. So let's come on to our final story for today. And this is another piece from the BBC. And it's a report that the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, has recommended eight online therapies for treating anxiety and depression. Um, So these have all been developed using tried and tested CBT methods. 
And this is important because NICE says these therapies have the potential to help more than 40,000 people in the UK. Um, and they've included the statistic in this piece that one in six people report experiencing a common mental health problem, such as anxiety and depression, in any given week in England, which is a shocking statistic. Um, and there is a really high demand, which we've we've talked about before. There's a high demand for NHS talking therapies, and there are super long wait times. They've cited six weeks as the average wait time in this piece, but um, I've definitely read elsewhere that it's for a lot of people, it can be a lot longer than six weeks to access the right support they need. Um, and obviously, this waiting period can be a really difficult time. So, yeah, these um, digital um, mental health treatments have been kind of cited as a, a way to help people get the treatment they need more quickly. And uh, specific conditions they name are body dysmorphic disorder, generalized anxiety, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, social anxiety disorder and depression. It's so encouraging to see NICE getting behind um, digital solutions, first and foremost, to really address what we know is a really significant issue right across the UK. And I, I think having accessibility to accredited, validated solutions, not just any old app that you can download from the app store but those that have been through this rigorous process is so valuable in actually being able to give people treatment rather than you know as I say what could essentially just be a a unaccredited perhaps inappropriate YouTube video or an app that's kind of just been cobbled together and thrown up onto the app store Um, and so I think you know Having that nice backing, I think, is an incredible step forward, particularly in in mental health, where th- that need is just so significant. And I read some stats recently about, and this is the other end of the spectrum, I guess, more so than perhaps a more generalised mental health condition, but that in order to be admitted, I don't know whether it's a child or a young person, but I, I feel like it, it might have been around that particular age group, but in order to be able to be admitted to a psychiatric ward I think that there had to be at least one if not maybe three attempts at suicide and I think when we're seeing people having to go through such incredibly traumatic experiences just to get help and support at that end of the spectrum isn't it's frightening it's it's really frightening and i think you know it, we really have to look at ways to make sure that we are not having to force people to wait until they are right at the end of their tether for want of a better word and and being able to support people much earlier on and even if it's not you know, an entire treatment solution, but it is something rather than the the total absence of care and support. Um, I think being able to tackle it further down the funnel actually has real implications much further down the line with people who have more severe, severe mental health conditions and whether or not that's ultimately freeing up capacity for them to receive care or indeed that they've received care at an earlier point in their journey. I think the outcome hopefully and 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 the data shows is is generally much better so 
I think it's it's really encouraging to to finally see this kind of being accepted as a normal and first line treatment first and foremost for people with mental health conditions. Um, so I'm incredibly encouraged, um, and it's it's really nice to just see that that kind of tick of approval, that validation when there is so much out there that people can ultimately just click on and download and and may not be receiving you know ult- the right care. I think that's the the real beauty of this, isn't it? Is that um, with digital therapeutics, it's still really such a such a, um, a new field that is is kind of really coming into uh, seeing its its uh, approval. So, I mean, I think the first mice approved digital therapeutic was uh, Sleepio, which was only like literally last year. So, uh, and I think that the signals it sent to other countries as well uh, and other healthcare systems is actually very positive. So. I think actually, you know, the the publication of this. I think of of course there's it's still pending probably regulatory requirements and and DTAC. I think I've read about some some uh, CBT apps for for children, which might not be uh, these eight actually, but are still pending other regulatory things. But I think it's it's very positive that actually there's a lot more things that are now being considered. And I think even in this, you know, to 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 quote the uh, the first topic we spoke about with the the cat, the ketamine assisted therapy, how the, the nasal spray was actually rejected. Uh, and some of the, the, the comments or kickback there was actually, look, I mean, we really need to be a bit more forward thinking with uh, um, mental health therapies. We can't be so, you know, even if it is going to be expensive, um, there are, you know, such positive benefits from from having widening access to to more um, more treatment. So I think the, the, you know, the digital landscape is always um, super, super, impressive because of course you've got that huge power to scale um and i think so it's a, it's a really positive signal mm. yeah and not just scaling but scaling in a really cost effective way and that has to be surely a really attractive proposition therefore to um you know nhs services but also even private providers um and and health insurers and all of that kind of thing um and i think you know at a time where resources are stretched um that there's no extra kind of wiggle room and as you say johnny you know you you have treatments being rejected because they are too expensive not because they're not efficacious enough but because they're too expensive i think this is not an entire solution in and of itself but it's a really positive step forward that actually means that health systems aren't having to spend a huge amount of money um, or as much money as perhaps they would ordinarily need to spend if it required humans to be in a room to provide that talking therapy, but actually have impact. And as I said, that has impact down the line, um, broadening that access and, and getting early intervention stops people from pro- progressing. Um, not in every case, but in many cases, or not progressing as far as possibly they would. Um, so yay for mental health maybe maybe the next step is nice approving these digital therapeutic solutions supplemented by cat maybe that's the next step that's the next the next nice approval we'll chat about that would be proper wraparound therapy as they say <laughs> yeah exactly everyone knows it's a slippery slope from apps to ketamine so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, that was a good, that was a good story to end on. I feel like we've had lots of um, positive stories in Pigeon today. So great. So before we before we wrap up, Johnny, do you want to um, tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Yeah, I will. Um, so at Pacific, we've been focused on self-directed healthcare and allowing 
and enabling patients to be able to to do more things for themselves. Um, that first began with COVID testing and providing a decentralized platform to quality assure that. And then we rolled out and did other types of remote diagnostics. So for UTIs and STIs and having a um, healthcare provider service both here in, in the UK and in Estonia. But our latest product that we've been working on for quite some time is actually um, trying to improve the communication between patient and provider in primary care. And that's something that we've seen a lot of uh, uh, issues with in Europe. So we started off in Estonia back in December with a running as platform that's now across in more than 15 clinics um, with very favorable responses from both providers and, and patients who are not having to just be repeatedly on the hold, on hold to their to their GP to, for, for simple things. Uh, and we take patients through um, clinically validated pathways and also they can also do non-clinical inquiries and, and admin and things like that. Uh, and currently I'm focused on um, taking us into Ireland and we are currently uh, exploring a few pilots in Dublin as we speak, and there should hopefully be something published in the Irish Medical Times as well today. So, yeah, keep a lookout. Cool, thanks, Johnny, um, and thank you, everyone. That was the Health Tech Region team analysing the Health Tech news, so you don't have to. Join us next week when Henry will return from his cabin in the Scottish wilderness to resume hosting duties. And in the meantime, check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs and podcasts in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. <laughs>